Sierra Dorr, the co-founder and managing director of Satakoy Depot, an urban farm in Satakoy, California that specializes in decolonized produce. Today I'm joined by Daniel Chavez, who is my partner in life and in business, and today we're going to talk about what decolonization is and why we found ourselves focusing on it. Hey man, how you doing? Doing good. Awesome. You ready to talk about decolonization? I guess so, yeah. <laughs> okay, well first I think it's very appropriate to acknowledge the land that we are sitting on, living on, farming on, which is Chumash land. Satakoy is even a Chumash word that means a place sheltered by the wind. You have uh, a different perspective on this. You grew up uh, thinking it meant something else. Yeah, I was always told as a child that it meant the riverbed, which uh, seems appropriate since uh, Satikoy lives or is situated on the riverbed of the Santa Clara River. Yeah, and... I just think it's really important to like acknowledge that family story still. Your family has been on Chumash land, Satakoy, city limits for generations. And they have quite a history in the community. Yeah. Um, I guess... Uh, when you say it that way, it feels much more, you know, um, like clout behind it. But that's definitely not it. They were just no. They, they. Um, I mean, they yeah. lived and worked in Sadakoy. Yeah, my grandpa was um, a mechanic, the head mechanic at the lemon packing factory there, and uh, my mom would always bring up the like you could see his work that he built this like conveyor system that was visible until. Um, the lemon factory lemon packing factory burned down a few years ago mm-hmm. it was crazy to see that but yeah just uh being connected to that place uh it is home to me yeah yeah and i do want to point out that when we started working with the land that your family home used to sit on it was riverbed land it's full of rocks. It's sandy. Like, that is a riverbed. Yeah, well, I would go um, when I was a kid and, like, go to the actual Santa Clara River, which isn't too far away. And we'd go hiking and playing on bikes and stuff. And, yeah, it was definitely similar to the land that we're working on now. It was, uh, you know, it doesn't have the sort of plants and the fauna that's there. But, right. you know, it is reminiscent of that that area that sort of dirt (laughs) yeah and okay so it it means place sheltered by the wind right and honestly ever since i learned that i've been like what is protecting it from the wind like it gets windy so i don't really understand what it meant but thinking now it's between like two mountain ranges it's a valley yeah so that makes sense yeah it does and i mean like there must be also, I mean, I think there's always a communities that uh, like settle next to water sources and the Santa Clara River is mm-hmm. not really running 
anymore so visibly anyways yeah it's a pretty big watershed underneath but um to to have that there there was an importance there i mean the railroad system mm-hmm. our namesake satico depot must have been built there for a reason yeah know? yeah right do you know how long ago it was since um there was running water and fauna mm, no i don't think so i know i'd love to figure that out we should we should look into it yeah yeah because yeah. you were the one actually who brought up that there used to be turtles yeah that lived there and i assume like the chumash may have eaten them as well as a food source yeah maybe. i mean i think there's still like a lot of i remember talking to someone that would say that there would be deer around and coming from a place mm-hmm. like Iowa, where deer are still roaming around, you know, and it is kind of like a city. I mean, it was a city where we lived, and yet to still be pretty close to seeing animals roaming. Yeah. You know, that's not something that we really saw growing up. Mm-hmm. I mean, I saw a wolf and definitely a bunch of stray dogs, but I mm-hmm. uh, don't know if that really counts. And uh, reading about the Santa Clara River watershed, yeah, there's like tons of different like animals that were there or are still there in limited populations. Fishing was a big thing. I mean, mm-hmm. that's right. Yeah, yeah. You know, huge thing. And there was um, types of fish that were indigenous to that yeah. area. And we are still very close to the ocean. Yeah. So that, I mean, people can still go fishing. There's still water, you know, marine life. Yeah. Someone told me uh, once that, the like the watershed underneath is one of the fastest moving in the area or the west coast or something like that so there's definitely water there i mean the agriculture uses water pumps and stuff like that so it's definitely there um but it's uh it's interesting to think about what was there yeah and i think that's the reason why we look at our the history of our the ingredients that we try to work with at the garden right and what materials we bring in mm-hmm. from the ocean as well yeah we use a lot of kelp and things from the ocean fish yeah mm-hmm. anywho well we kind of got a little derailed we're here to talk about decolonization yeah which starts with yes the acknowledgement of the land that we're on so okay it wasn't that much of a derailment <laughs> um but I think it's really important to give people like a clear idea of what decolonization is. And I think it, it can, like, we can have a very academic definition, but um, I kind of just want to talk about what that means for us, honestly, and how it it transpires in the Sadequa Depot. Yeah, because I think there's a lot of iterations, and in the U.S., I think there's, I mean, a lot of cultures that are, that are seeing that sort of movement and trying to make it their own and trying to um, sort of say it in a way that makes sense for them. But for us, it's really about just creating a safe space for Mm -hmm. the foods we eat, the places we want to work the culture we want to share with people so and just taking away 
at a basic level, just kind of taking away some of those Eurocentric ideas that dominated our cultures. Mm-hmm. And is yes, literally, you know, being Mexican American, Chicano, and you and your ancestry to the Philippines, like those were areas colonized by the Spanish, and then right the you know Americans and. So, yeah, I agree. Yes. So decolonization is creating a safe space away from those European influences. And for me, it's deconstructing the uh, how colonization has... um, the ideas that it's ingrained in me from my experience being an American, but also the experience of my ancestors and the trauma that's ingrained in my DNA because of it, because of hundreds of years of colonization in both of our ancestors' native countries. So, yeah, how do you see it? Like, oh, how do you feel like it's manifested? in your life now from maybe like a family point of view yeah because family is the most prominent way that the trauma of colonization has manifested right so for me for for me for me for me yes i i see and i'm confronted with the abuse I have received and it's oh right that is a terrible thing right and it's can be all-consuming and be such a big source of pain that can get stuck but it's always felt like there was more to it like there was an iceberg underneath so when abuse when like pain is inflicted it felt I felt like there was more to it and through the lens of decolonization I'm able to like finally acknowledge that and see the centuries of trauma that has been passed down through the generations of my family and has yeah manifested in my life yeah because i think through that lens you can see you know the key word is the trauma like causes someone to react a certain way or to live a certain life and that's lasts for generations mm-hmm. you know when someone who might have been living a certain existence or a certain quality of life and then that is the new experience is forced upon them that is really traumatic experience and um and then for them to adjust their life patterns like that doesn't go away for the next generation if anything then they learn it and they like live it Mm -hmm. and then it takes a lot to sort of step away from that and turn around um yeah from the ancestors and be like hey you know this is not the way i want to live my life and then how do i get away from that yeah and this isn't something I'd normally share, but I'm feeling feeling open right now. Um, and you know this, 
that I went to a healer some years back and we dove into a past life that was like the main characters in this past life were me and my parents and I was the parent and they were my kids and we had gone through colonization where my children had been ripped from me and my our family life and they were put into colonized schools and it was very traumatic for them Mm -hmm. and that healing session was all about healing that the trauma from that life so it's like I'm I feel like more purpose uh from that and I didn't even connect that until like right now which is Mm -hmm. so crazy so I that just even more solidifies like taking control of my narrative and my purpose in this life um to heal yeah all of those like my bloodline Mm -hmm. (laughs) from this body but also like spiritually like past lives as well um and i think that's the reason why it was easier for me to maybe like use the term decolonized so openly in in the first like um sort of the first times we were sort of connected to that word and that idea where for you it took a lot more effort to kind of get to the point where i'm proclaiming that this is something to me that's decolonized Mm -hmm. but before we talk about that because i think we will talk about that i think i just want to kind of say like my um idea of like a generational like uh, effect of colonization Mm -hmm. is something a little lighter but my grandpa and my great uncle i mean they were great examples of people for me that like had sort of lived experiences of what like of hustling to try to like make stuff happen Mm -hmm. you know and I don't I really think that was based on the sort of traumas that they faced you know not Mm -hmm. maybe directly from colonization but the impact that it had from them um and yeah they were just like always trying to make something out of nothing and i think that's a common shared experience for people that were somehow taken like where they were there was things taken away from them Mm -hmm. culturally and like you know um modern like resource wise too Mm -hmm. um and i think that's always like a consequence of how colonization works works Yeah. yeah And uh, I think that I, I exemplify that because I want to, like, I see it as a good trait, you know, like trying to figure out how to, like, make something out of nothing. And I don't even know if, like, my great uncle made me a bike and he used a steering this, wheel mm-hmm. as a handlebar. And I don't know if he didn't have a handlebar or if he just really thought it was a cool idea. Yeah. But I like to think that it was just because, like, he had that available to him and he did it, you know? Yeah. So, I think that's so cool. I love, and I love that story. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah, you're right. I do want to talk about how we started talking about decolonization. 
Um, I will say that you were the first one. You warmed up to that term more quickly than I. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I have my story of how I learned the term a coworker um, brought Decolonize Your Diet, which is a book by these two wonderful professors from CSU East Bay and San Francisco State. And it's a whole book about decolonized Mexican recipes. And, you know, that was the intro, but it took, that was years before we started talking about it in regards to Satakoy Depot. Mm -hmm. So can you talk a little bit about your journey, like warming up to the term and how you felt started to feel comfortable saying it? I think, I mean, it kind of feels like I feel apprehensive saying like why, but because it just feels like the same thing about the interaction with the word and the term is that it kind of felt superficial. You know, I saw it as this like sort of um, very like clear and concise kind of put in a box like, wow, this is a cool mantra to use, like decolonize as a movement as a way to like kind of sanitized a little bit and now as i dive deeper into it i realize that it is so it's very multi-dimensional in the way we use like decolonizing whether it's like with the food or you know in the workplace or in creating just safe spaces for conversations and ideas and that's why i think um it's like important to iter- to reiterate like that this is for the culture you know like to expand ideas mm-hmm. not by the culture yeah you know when we talk about this concept of decolonization it doesn't i don't want it to seem like oh well he said it this way my friend who's this you know so it means this yeah you I, don't want to speak yeah. for every latinx person or yeah chicano man or yeah or the decolonized movement in north america or anything like that i think it's just we want to kind of expound that idea a little bit so i just felt like it was a little superficial like relationship and i thought it was really great to use this term that you know if you put it in sort of that like uh mainstream culture like terminology was like a new diet mm-hmm. you know like decolonized is i mean it's gluten-free, gluten-free yeah dairy free uh-huh. yeah it's all these things that like were popular and are popular in mainstream paleo yeah, yeah keto and those kind of things but it was in a form that made more sense to me as a person of color right um but yeah and i will also say that in my experience I wasn't in love with the idea of decolonized food I didn't latch onto that for me I had to go in through like a side door to decolonization it had to be about dismantling um white supremacy dismantling structural oppression 
and that through that better is where I came to terms with decolonization and then applied it to food systems and then my diet because and your business and my business and, yes and the way you want to like live your life yeah 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 it, everything yeah and I mean even in like the the business has kind of like evolved from that sort of perspective too because you know when we were making pan dulce these mexican sweetbreads in iowa we kind of were doing it to have intercultural connection and dialogue and then to expand the food landscape there but at the end of the day we were creating a product that was a direct like consequence of colonization a hundred percent and you know it took us a while to like feel comfortable enough to be like you know what like even though this is a like culturally significant like um food product and we do love that people are like sharing it and enjoying it and like experiencing the joy with us that it contradicted what we wanted to exemplify in our business and yeah the life we wanted to live so yeah i think can i interrupt you yeah, a yeah. little bit um yeah, I kind of forgot. <laughs> I forgot we used to be a bakery. And we're more than happy to like bake from time to time. But yes, because it is like bread is a product of colonization. Like you're like, we have to step away. And we came to terms with making pendulce also because those are two things that are like ancestry produced out of colonization um and so we had that similar experience like the similar history and I do just kind of want to take like a minute to do a history lesson where both the Philippines and Mexico were colonized by Spain around the same time like mid 1500s and then they were both under Spanish rule for about 300 years. And I think that's so interesting. Same period of time, same amount of time. And we have, yeah, very, it's not a good thing, (laughs) but very similar effects on language, very similar Mm -hmm. effects on food, religion, family life child rearing and even healing healing modalities i think were really impacted as well um there's like a filipino herbalist uh i don't know tagalog like i'm only an english speaker but so i can't remember off the top of my head but yeah the herbalists in the philippines have like a spanish name Mm. that's so sad to me yeah we joke around though too that like uh, oh yeah Filipinos and Mexicans have same last names so yeah yeah like... <laughs> 100% mm-hmm. yeah and so yeah right, so that's the end of my history lesson um and a lot of beautiful things came of it you know one of my favorite dishes um synagogue Filipino dishes has a lot of like native Mexican ingredients mm-hmm. in it mm-hmm. and South American ingredients yeah so yeah, and I think we would always talk about that in the first, like, sessions of uh, when we were selling Pandusa. 
and like talking about the diaspora of the ingredients mm-hmm. you know to represent the diaspora of the people too mm-hmm. and i think that's always a way to connect over like shared stories of you know migration of people and food and uh it was always something to be able to like to to learn more deeply about a culture through yeah. their food yeah so we're almost running out of time so i i just kind of want to talk about last year i want to rewind to 2020 and talk about how Sadequay Depot um, like officially made that change based on everything that was going on in our country, in the world, and then like in our lives. So I don't think our communities are aware of what happened to us in particular. And like, we're not going to talk about everything that went on behind the scenes, but we can probably share a little bit about our experience um, and how that really pushed us and moved us into the space that we are in of decolonization. Yeah, I think there was like quite a bit of like, um, like culture shifting in this year. And I think we think that the pandemic really pushed us to reflect on our lives and then that the culture really shifted because of that. And I think to an extent it did, but I also feel that somehow it was happening already, you know, with the political, like, climate we were in and the way people were finally saying, like, no, this isn't how I want to live my life. And I think that's where we came from. I mean, we did go through a lot in 2020, you know, but you leaving your job, me losing, like, being forced out of my job and having to move and losing our safety net and our home and our culture there in the community yeah um that we felt that sort of kinship to like being like hey we don't want to live this life the way we're being forced to live Mm -hmm. anymore with the constraints and around the mold that people want us to um to be so Mm -hmm. it was a tough decision to be kind of move forward and 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 kind of brush off that sort of oppression that we were experiencing yeah you know when we started dating i remember i used to always tell people like speak your truth to create a safe space for them and i haven't said it in a long time but we were so forced to speak our truth to ourselves and it's like the truest truth mm-hmm. and um i guess that's why we're doing this podcast as well is to speak our truth yeah definitely yeah and i look forward to seeing how it evolves as we evolve with the business and how we really rebuild where we left off yeah all righty well that's all we have for today. I think in the future, we'll dive more into this because decolonization is just such a, a huge topic. 
Um, yeah, and I mean that. I think at the end of the day, like I said, like we want it to be for the culture. Like, explore it for yourself. Play with these sort of concepts and ideas, and like what this word means to you personally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and as we are always doing. And we're still exploring it too. So our relationship to that word and the ideas and concepts around it will continue to change just as our business has changed. So Mm -hmm. thanks for being here. Thanks for talking to me, Daniel. Yeah. Thanks for listening, everyone. Bye. for listening you can find decolonize your diet the book on amazon and you can find us on social media at facebook.com slash and on instagram at sadikoidebo